There is no kids choir this morning, but uh, children are welcome to Children's Church, which they can find through this door over by the piano on the left side. So the kids are welcome to go. And will you bow with me in prayer and let's seek the Lord's face together. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Everything is in your hands and you're so faithful and you remember all your promises and you remember your people. And Father, you have compassion on your people and you never forget us. Our names are written on your hand and you have made a wonderful pledge to us and it can never fail. Father, by Your own grace, when we weren't thinking of You, You reached out to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. and You rescued us. You pulled us out of the deep and You set our feet on a solid rock. You taught us to walk. You put a song of praise in our mouth. Father, You're faithful. And Lord, we would give You praise and thanks this morning for Your faithfulness to us in saving us in calling us to know You, in waking us up from the the sleep of death, and in showing us the light of life, showing us the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open Your Word this morning, that You will continue to open our eyes and open our hearts to see Christ and to love Christ and to love Him with all our hearts, to devote ourselves to You. And Father, we pray for our partners who are spreading the gospel around the world this morning. And I especially remember Mark and Lois Shaw who work in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, teaching church leaders at a seminary there. And Father, we pray for you to strengthen them and equip them and prepare them. And Father, we look forward to their visit with us in about a month and how they'll get an opportunity after a long time to share with the congregation. Father, we pray that you'll be with them and as they come that you'll uh, unite our hearts and enable us to hear and rejoice in what you're doing there in Kenya. Father, we pray for their students in the seminary there in Nairobi, people coming from all around Africa to, to study the Word and to get ready to serve you in a very difficult place. And Father, we pray for students to be filled with faith and strengthened and to glorify You by a life of faith. And Father, we pray for ourselves to glorify You by a life of faith. And we pray for this congregation, this church, as we gather together, as we seek to serve You, as we seek to encourage one another, as we seek to fellowship in a way that builds one another up. Father, we just pray that You'll do great things in this congregation, that You'll work in our hearts, that You'll keep us faithful, that You'll fill us with gratitude and joy because of your love, because of your presence. And so, Father, be with us in this hour and lift our hearts to heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14 this morning. We're finishing up chapter 14, as Rick said earlier. You can find where we are in the Pew Bible if you open up to page 1034. And uh, Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 25, and uh, right through the end of the chapter, verse 35. 
So Luke 14, 25 to 35. So I want to read this passage for you. Uh, I've entitled my remarks this morning, No Neutral Ground. And so here's, here's the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 14, starting with verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost and see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go out to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he is not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, a third of mankind today claims the title Christian. And it's amazing when you think that one person uh, who lived so long ago has had such an impact on all posterity. And uh, so many people claim Jesus as their master, as their Lord. It's also amazing when you consider how Jesus treated crowds and how he spoke to crowds when he had the opportunity. And uh, he didn't seem to do all he could to gather large numbers of people, uh, but he, he put them off. There must be thousands of Christians today gathered around the South Shore, worshiping Christ. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all be together in one place? And uh, it would be an amazing, encouraging event to be part of. But I wonder what Jesus would say if he were to stand up and speak to us all. I think that, uh, you know, we might expect uh, someone at an occasion like that to kind of stand up and say, I'm very pleased to speak to you. It's a great privilege to speak to you this morning. I don't think Jesus would say that. Um, We might expect him to say something like, it's amazing to think that we started with just a few people and here we've become so many just in the South Shore area. But I, I don't think that's how Jesus would speak. I think if Jesus were to speak to his people today, he would speak the way he spoke in the Bible, the way he speaks here, the way he speaks to churches in the book of Revelation in those first few chapters. And he speaks with discontent and with a sense of urgency and with a great concern for the people that he's addressing even people who follow him, who are known by his name, 
even people who've suffered a great deal for him, but he's not content with where they are. And so, here Jesus addresses a crowd and he demands full and lifelong faith. And this is what Jesus would say to us today, is that he demands from us full and lifelong faith. Uh, I think that if uh, Jesus were to enter uh, you know, one of our schools of training for the ministry, if he were to enter a seminary and take a class on evangelism, he might not get the very highest marks. You know, here, here we have uh, this passage at the end of, of Luke. It's sandwiched between two great passages that lift up the importance of evangelism, that really portray for us how urgent it is to go out into the highways and the byways, the country lanes, the hedgerows, and compel them to come in, as Jeremy was saying last week. And then Luke chapter 15, the following chapter, uh, three great illustrations of the priority that Christ places on reaching the lost and how it's so urgent that we go to the lost with the message of salvation. And so here in this passage, Jesus has the opportunity to demonstrate for us how he does that. How does he go about reaching the lost? How does he go into the country lanes and address the crowds and compel them to come in? And it's very amazing how he does it. It's not the way we would do it at all. Um, I think he would uh, get low marks in his seminary evangelism class. Because Jesus has a different set of concerns than what we normally have. We naturally are very concerned that an evangelist be sensitive to the feelings of people. But Jesus is concerned for the souls of people. That people are addicted to their idols and that they're not turning away from them. And so he wants to pierce them and poke them and get their attention to the Word of God so that they can be changed. And Jesus has another concern that hardly ever enters into our minds as, uh, as Christians and evangelists, it seems, the way that we speak sometimes. He's concerned for his glory. Jesus stands up and demands full-on love for him. Full-on commitment to him. You know, um, it's, it's amazing. People say that Jesus was a great teacher a great moral teacher. But uh, name any person who earned the title of a great, great or teacher who, whose message was give up everything and put me first. Me before everything else. And that's his message. I'm first in your life or, or you don't have anything to do with me. That's not the message of a great teacher. That's someone who's an egomaniac. You know, Jesus, he talks like God. <laughs> and um, he, that's how he would have us receive him. That's how he would have us treat him. So what would Jesus say to us? Uh, let's look in verses 26 and 27. Uh, following Jesus means facing trouble. So Luke 14, 26 and 27, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me 
cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is saying that following him means facing trouble. It means encountering obstacles in life, competition that is going to draw away our love and our affection and our faith to other things, opposition that is going to uh, resist our, our attempts to follow Christ and serve him. So first we have to resist every kind of competition. And that's the significance of what Jesus says here, that you must hate your father, mother, your brother, sister. These are the relationships, the family relationships that are so sacred, so important, so basic. Family relationships which Jesus upheld as sacred. He urged uh, people, children to honor their fathers and mothers. He said that all the laws have to be fulfilled. That adultery is, is a great sin. That a husband and a wife need to be faithful to one another. And uh, that parents need to love their children. So Jesus uh, is not literally saying that, we, that uh, you know, a real Christian or you know, a good person is the person who hates his family. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that compared to how you love him, all other relationships have to look like hate. And this is, this is partly just the, the Hebrew way of saying things. And uh, Hebrews loved the stark contrasts. And uh, this sort of thing comes out. Um, David was coming home from battle. He'd lost his son Absalom, who was rebelling against him. And Absalom had gotten killed. And David is weeping and crying as the army comes back into town. And so the army's all embarrassed and, and humiliated. And uh, Job comes and rebukes the king and says, you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. We can very plainly see that you would be happy today if all of us were dead and Absalom were alive because David was preferring his son to all the others. He loved his son. And so, uh, in the same way Jesus uses this this love-hate terminology, he says you can't serve two masters in Luke 16. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll serve the one and despise the other. There's only two settings, love and hate, and they're the opposites. If you put me in second place, you've hated me. So that's, that's the thinking. So if, um, if the dear ones in your life take first place, then you've hated Christ. And you've given him second place. But if you give Christ first place, then at some point there's going to be a tension. And you have to resist the competition. You have to deny the competition that Christ alone receives all of your love. Uh, The way he says it uh, down in verse 33, it's very interesting. Down verse 33, he sort of makes the same point. He sums it up. He says, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And in the original language, it's not, it's not quite so plain as that, to give up everything. But there's a, it's an unusual word. It's used about seven times in the New Testament. To give up, what's translated give up here. In the original, it just means to bid farewell. To say goodbye. And I, I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in, in his translation in the message. He gets a very literal sort of sense to it. He says you've got to Whatever it is, 
that would compete for your affection, for your love, for your commitment, you've got to kiss it goodbye. Kiss it goodbye. So whatever would compete with us goes into second place and we hate it. We love only Christ. So there's no competition allowed. If you're going to follow Christ, it means the trouble of competition and it also means the trouble of hardship. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to endure every kind of hardship that results from love for Christ. Christ is considered accursed. He is considered rejected and despised by the world. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Galatians chapter 3. Jesus is considered cursed by the world. The more clearly His claims are represented, the more clearly they're opened up and pressed upon people, the more people are divided into two categories, those who love Christ and those who reject Him and would curse Him. Those who are drawn by Christ and those who are offended by Christ. And so, uh, as you follow Christ more fully and more faithfully, you're going to find there are those who love you and those who reject you. And so you're going to experience hardship as you follow Christ. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So it will come. So if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to need to put aside the competition and you're going to need to endure the hardship. It's like the wedding vows that many of us have taken, that many of us hope to take someday soon. A commitment to have and to hold, to honor, to, to cherish, to keep from this day forward, forsaking all others and to keep only to this one. So all others are hated because there's a commitment to this one. No other is considered. Any other who interferes with this relationship will actually be hated. And so, we have to have a commitment to Christ that opens no opportunity for any other. And it's for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, till death do us part. Have you made a commitment like that to Christ? Whatever the hardship, whatever the cost, that you will be His. That you will follow Him. So, there are different kinds of shortcomings, shortfalls in our faith. There are different ways in which we come short and, and, and we give out in our faith in Christ. And so, Jesus addresses some of these with some illustrations here. And... Uh, the first that, that I'd like us to look at is, is the, the short burn phenomenon. What about the Christian who, who is faithful and full of faith for a time? Who is vigorous and strong in his faith in Christ? Who is zealous and committed halfway, halfway through life? And then he gives out, he gives up, he, he turns back, he surrenders. And Jesus says, we've got to Count the cost at the beginning. He says that what we have to do is first sit down. First sit down and reckon. 
take up an accounting and consider what is to be gained, what is to be lost, and what are the resources to enable you to go through this. So first, sit down. Will you read with me here in uh, verses 28 through 33? And Jesus speaks of uh, what it means to follow him and that following Jesus halfway means facing disaster. Following Jesus for only half the time, being a short-burn Christian, means facing a, a terrible downfall, facing disaster. So he says, starting with verse 28, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go out to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. And if he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So we must first sit down. We have to count costs. We have to be ready for costs. The costs of following Christ. And the costs may exceed our inheritance. Do the costs of following Christ exceed what you get in Christ? Have you received by faith in Christ more than you will pay or less than you will pay? Are you going to end up coming short? Will you end up with a shortfall? Will you be unable to make it through? Are the resources that you find in Christ enough to enable you to put out for a whole lifetime the way that Christ asks you to put out? Is Christ able to provide for you? Is Christ able to protect you? And if Christ decides not to provide for you and protect you in this life, is he able to reward you? Are his resources sufficient? Is it, uh, is it a, a solid undertaking to try to build the tower of a dedicated Christian life, a lifelong service to Christ? And you have to make up your mind, are you going to trust Christ or are you going to decline? Are you going to start out strong with a lot of faith, with a lot of promise, with a lot of uh, spending and uh, eagerly giving and serving the Lord and giving of your time and uh, dedicating yourself to Christ, and then a shock comes. When you, when you finally begin to take stock, and in your view it really doesn't look like this is a good deal, and you start having buyer's remorse, and so then you start cutting corners, and you start procrastinating, and eventually the project is left unfinished, and you come back and you look and the weeds are growing and the materials are beginning to decay in the weather because you're not committed to finishing it. Because you didn't believe you had the resources. And then a- another way that we fall short, that we, that we become short-burned Christians is, is that we experience opposition. And does Christ give you the power 
to resist the opposition that you may face as you follow him? Is there the strength in Christ to stand up to the kind of opposition that you will encounter as you serve Christ? And so, um, in the case of this king, Jesus illustrates what it's like to follow him by saying it's like going out with 10,000 against an opponent who has 20,000. You only have half the army. But if Christ is on your side, you will win. If Christ is with me, I have the resources. If Christ will go with me, if his promise is good, he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age, then I can win. And, and no opponent can hold me back. No, no resistance, no opposition can overcome me. But I can have victory. Will I give out if the opposition is long and drawn out? Will I give out if the opposition is the long, slow dripping that wears a person down? Will I give out if the opposition is sudden and bloody? Will I have the strength to endure? You know, as I look at myself, I really don't know. But as I look at Christ, if Christ is with me, certainly I can endure. Certainly I can encounter anything. Certainly I can win. I can hold on and I can carry through to the end. So first, sit down. First, sit down. Have you added it up? Does it add up? Is Christ indeed enough for you? First sit down. Where are you going to take a reckoning of this? Open your Bible. Read the words of Christ. Read the Gospel of Luke. See the Lord Jesus Christ and pray, God, open my eyes to see the power, the glory, the wonderful attractiveness of Christ. Win my heart over. Fill me with love for Christ. Lord, help me to see the the power and the resources that are there and to have a strong faith that will endure. Help me to see this so that I can really take on the challenge that's ahead of me. You'd better sit down and take stock. Jesus says, uh, the one who believes in me, as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. And by this he meant the Holy Spirit. John 7:38 Rivers of living water the holy spirit will constantly work in you and supply there is a supply for you and uh, you can endure so there are those of us who are short burn christians are you a short burn christian have you given up have you surrendered has there been a humiliating defeat you started off strong you you, you were full of promise, you were full of boldness, but the boldness sort of gave way to some quiet doubts. And then it was sort of proceeding as if you were still bold, but it's really just fake. It's just bluffing, bravado. And then comes the moment when it's all torn open and it's chaos and despair everywhere. Everything's falling apart. And then an ignominious surrender. Going back to the same sins the thought that you had forever left behind and being humiliated, having to go back hat in hand to your friends and say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have followed Christ. It wasn't worth it. Is that how it's going to be? Is Christ really not sufficient? 
Have you made up your mind? Or are you just blithely wandering ahead, carelessly, just figuring that, well, something will work out? Are you just going along because the crowd was there and you figured, well, whatever everybody else is doing, I'll go do the same? Have you sat down to think, to take stock in God's Word? So there are the, the short-burn Christians, but there are also the slow-burn Christians. There are also the, uh, the ones that have found a way to endure to the end. The way to endure to the end and to never experience a humiliating defeat is to never take a very strong stand in the first place. The way to get all the way through is to you know, keep your head low, to kind of lie low, to work out a compromise, to be kind of an a incognito Christian, to, to, to you know, be a slow burn Christian. Hold on to your fuel. It's a long race after all, isn't it? So let's not, let's not get too excited about Christ. Let's, uh, let's just hold it in and uh, take a slow route. Following Christ half-heartedly means facing judgment. And that's what Jesus has to say here at the end of the passage. If you'll look with me at verse 34 and 35, Jesus talks about salt. And he talks about salt losing its saltiness. And what that means is an image of a Christian losing his essential characteristic that makes him a Christian. A Christian who lacks the essential qualities that distinguish a Christian. How crazy. So this is what he says. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And when Jesus says it is thrown out, he is speaking of me being worthless to him and being handed over to judgment for my sins. And so, uh, some characteristics of salt. Salt in the ancient world was extremely valuable. In fact, it was a currency. In fact, in some places today, uh, in Ethiopia, it's still used as a currency in some rural areas. Um, people would go to extreme lengths for salt. It's necessary for life. If you don't have salt, you will die, especially in a hot climate where you sweat a lot. You have to have salt. People would go to extreme lengths for salt. Ever heard of Timbuktu? Do you know what Timbuktu was? From here to Timbuktu, you know, it's sort of a proverb for going really far. Timbuktu is a little outpost in Mali, in the Sahara Desert, way out in the middle of nowhere. And camel caravans would travel to Timbuktu for salt in times when there was, there was you know, no salt available in other areas. They could still get salt in Timbuktu. And uh, so salt is valuable. Christians are something precious in God's sight. Faith is something of more value than gold. Even gold perishes, even if it's refined by fire. And uh, faith is of more value. And it will be proved genuine at the day when the Lord Jesus comes. So um, Christians are of, of tremendous value in God's sight. 
Salt is something valuable. Salt is something powerful. It only takes a little to go a long way. You don't eat a spoon of salt. You put a spoon of salt into a whole lot of food and it changes the quality and the characteristic of a whole lot of food. A little salt goes a long way. Salt is pungent, it's powerful, it's strong. And that's how a Christian is supposed to be. Are you a pungent, powerful, and strong Christian? That's how we're supposed to be. And uh, salt is valuable, it's powerful. And salt, at least in Jesus' time and place, salt could lose its saltiness. And of course, these are all things that are kind of strange to us. You know, salt is not valuable to us. It's the cheapest thing in the grocery store. Uh, I guess salt is kind of strong, but we can think of stronger things. Um, salt, uh, to us, can never lose its saltiness because we buy refined salt. It's pure sodium chloride, pretty much. Uh, but in Jesus' day, the salt that they had was uh, material that would be collected from the edge of the Dead Sea, that would be collected in swamps or uh, places where it had, it had uh, you know, solidified. And it would often contain other minerals Um, various other kinds of soluble salts, but it would also contain insoluble uh, minerals like gypsum, things that would not dissolve in water. And, uh, And so what they would do is they would collect this salt and you had to take care of it. Now you could use the salt up. You could maybe put it into a bag and throw it in the cooking pot and all the salt would come out, what we call salt. And what would be left, well, we would call it like other stuff, other minerals. But they'd say, well, you know, you put salt in the bag, you cook with it, and you open up the bag, what's in it? It's salt. But it's salt that's lost its saltiness. You know, if you you have a nice big 50-pound gunny sack of salt and you think, man, I'm set, you know, for a long time here, and you leave it out in the rain, you know, you're, you're going to still have a bag of something. It'll be smaller, but you'll still have a nice bag of something and you'll still call it salt, but it's worthless. It's salt that's lost its saltiness. Do you have a love for Christ that endures? Do you have a salty life? Or have you been leached out? Have you given up and compromised? Are you still looking on the outside like a Christian? And it still looks like there's something in the bag, but it's lost its, its essential quality. Have you become a leached out Christian? Are you a slow burn Christian? Uh, you need to love the Lord with all your heart. If you're a, a savorless Christian, if you're a leached out Christian, this is what Jesus says about you. You're neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. You're no longer fit for even the the common lower uses of salt, you know, as a fertilizer, as an agricultural uh, commodity. You're You're not worth anything at all. You're trash. And so you're just left to judgment. You're not a precious Christian if you're a leached out Christian with no faith. You know, God saves by His grace and He transforms by His grace. God elects from eternity, and those whom God saves are never lost, but they endure to the end, and they're faithful. Real born-again Christians hold on to the end. Are you one? Or are you one of these 
slow burn Christians or one of these, uh, you know, fast burn Christians that uh, just peters out and doesn't really uh, persist in power. Jesus confronts us. And he confronts us that we need to face this issue or face judgment. We need to repent. Turn with me to the back of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 2, page 1216 in the Pew Bible. Jesus speaking to the churches, Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus calls on people who have lost their first love to address the situation. And there's one thing we need to do. We need to repent. He says, Yet I hold this against you. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And look again over at uh, chapter 3. The next page. At uh, the top of the page. Verse 14. Revelation 3, verse 14. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest. And repent. If you've given up on your Christian life, perhaps these words of the Lord Jesus Christ were sent to call you back. If you've become washed out, perhaps these words of the Lord Jesus Christ have been sent to call you back to repent. Jesus concludes with such a challenge, these last words in the Gospel, in Luke 14, the last words he says. Uh, He just grabs you by the scruff of the neck and he shakes you and he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So either get it or forget it. He's, He's tough with us. He says, listen, if you don't understand what I'm saying, you're deaf. And you can't understand anything and there's no relationship. You're not following me. You're not my disciple. There's nothing between us. Either get it or forget it. And so Jesus gives us this challenge. Brothers and sisters, are you full on in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you living for Him and for Him alone? Are you putting all competition behind? Are you willing to take on whatever is the opposition? And will you endure to the end in love for the Lord Jesus Christ?